everyone. This is Joanne LaRock. I'm going to be talking to my daughter this time. Uh, her uh, three boys are with my husband. He's taking them fishing. So it gives us some quieter time in the house <laughs> to do this podcast. It is July 26, 2023. And uh, for this podcast, I'd like to introduce you to Jessica. And uh, she could tell us a little bit about herself. But she will be discussing mental health and also when should a person possibly go for counseling. Uh, and she will explain that a little further. So here you go. Hi, Jess. Hello. How are you? <laughs> <Did> you? <laughs> we just talked to each other five minutes ago. <laughs> All right. Well, like my mom said, my name is Jessica. I have three boys, ages of 11, uh, 9, and 6. I'm a full-time university student. Um, unfortunately, since I'm currently living in a small town, I have been able to... Uh, I work on my studies, I guess, online. I'm currently going for a degree in Indigenous social work. However, I plan to further my uh, my education, I guess you'd say. I'm interested in, yes, mental health as well as restorative therapy. Um, and I think I, to start off, I'd like to um, exercise discretion a little bit and provide um, the, not the viewer, the listener, <laughs> um, with a trigger warning, since we will be discussing mental health topics and some of them are um, a little bit more heavier to talk about. Um, some of that would be about suicide and trauma and what have you. So to begin, I guess I'll share my diagnoses. I was first diagnosed with CPTSD, which is complex post-traumatic stress syndrome. And um, I received a bipolar diagnosis about three years ago, so that's been pretty interesting to deal with. However, I'm very open about speaking about it because I figured, you know, one way to reduce stigma is just to get it out there. And um, yeah, it's something that I'm not ashamed of. of. Of course, I'm a person first before my disorders. However, um, I think it's also important to talk about the experiential knowledge that I do have from living with these disorders and not just things that I've learned throughout school. Oh, that sounds very interesting. Uh, as a family, when Jessica was uh, had some issues, I believe you were 12, I think. Started around, yeah. 11, 12 years old. Mm-hmm. We uh, went all as a family for counseling to, to fully understand and learn what our daughter was going through. She's a twin as well. And so um, we all went for counseling and learned quite a bit, but uh, we we didn't realize the scope of, of uh, Jessica's diagnosis. And she is uh, quite a blessing because she's educated not only herself, but us as a family on what she's going through. And also, uh, she is very, uh, very uh, socially media aware to educate the public and Facebook friends. And she's done TikTok videos and and uh, social media kind of uh, venues where she educates people because it's still, to some degree, a subject that a lot of people including myself, we don't know everything. I I was born in the 50s, and uh, it was a a real secretive kind of thing if someone had a nervous breakdown in the family. I had two great aunts that had nervous breakdowns, and then uh, my dad's mother, uh, she was hospitalized almost every spring with, uh, I guess you could say a, a nervous breakdown, but more of a she developed a sad and uh, which is seasonal. A, what is it? Seasonal, seasonal affective depression. Affective depression, yeah. where it uh, seemed like every winter she would get extremely depressed, and so uh, and unfortunately, uh, my grandmother died on Mother's Day, and uh, there was there was reasons for that, I think too, but I'm. Uh, she had lost her children uh, to CAS, and that would be my father. 
And uh, I'll uh, be posting my father's um, interview on my podcast in the near future. But uh, he's someone, too, that I asked, maybe you should go for counseling, Dad. (laughs) But again, he was born in the 30s, so that was something that was not really something uh, that you were... uh, inclined to do. But I'd like to ask Jessica, when you were first diagnosed with these different symptoms, how did you feel and about how old were you? Well, when I received like a an official diagnosis, this wasn't until I was an adult. Um, the CPTSD, I want to say about maybe four and a half, five years ago. And then, like I said, for my bipolar disorder, or sorry, not my bipolar disorder, I trying to um, use a first in, sorry, person, first, first person approach, sorry, (laughs) um, when speaking about this, because a lot of the times, and yes, it's probably because of stigma and how people used to be institutionalized a lot more for these types of issues. A lot of the time, you know, when you hear that someone has bipolar disorder, a lot of times people will commonly refer to them as, oh, he or she has bipolar. So, um, yeah, I just think it's important to remember that, despite having these disorders or illnesses, the person's still a person. They still have, you know, emotions, thoughts, they still have their own personal autonomy and so on. Um, And it's always interesting to hear about, um, I guess, even family history on both sides of struggling with mental illness, because despite, you know, back then, a lot of the times women were, it was said about them that they were having nervous breakdowns or what what have you. But a lot of the times too, you know, these, these were disorders that are illnesses that weren't, we didn't know enough about them, I guess, mm-hmm. at that point. Um, and it was shameful. And it was shameful. Yes. Yeah. Even, you know, there's still stigma too about having a mental disorder because it's interesting when I do disclose to someone about having these disorders, especially bipolar disorder, there's usually like two reactions that come out of it. The first one being, you know, they know someone they know someone that has, you know, CPTSD or bipolar disorder, you know, and that's kind of how they carry on the conversation. Or the second reaction is, I don't want to say disgust, but like... Scared, I think, sometimes. Uh, well, no, I think it's probably a little bit of both. Yeah. There's still a lot, because, you know, you... I think sometimes just because as humans, we compare a lot of things to association, right? So especially with bipolar disorder, um, if I were to use like recent examples like Kanye West or Charlie Sheen, you know, those are very extreme forms of bipolar disorder that's probably unmedicated, um, especially because I believe it's called anosognosia or something like this, where an individual doesn't believe that they are sick themselves or that they don't have a disorder, which, you know, it doesn't matter how much proof you give to that person, when they're unwell, they can't see it within themselves, right? Uh, so. Margaret Trudeau uh, wrote about that in her book. Yeah, uh, She is our uh, Prime Minister's mother, and uh, she didn't realize what she was going through for a long time. And she wrote about having bipolar uh, disorder mm-hmm. in one of her books, and I found it to be very enlightening. Mm. So... Uh, when would a person need to go for counseling or do you get medicated for that? Well, okay, so I think it's an important, first of all, um, before answering that that question specifically, because a lot of times people will use the term counseling and therapy interchangeably, even though they, you know, they both mean their own thing. So, and you're not a counselor yourself, not yet. Well, no, I, I technically I am able to counsel people. I have that, I guess if you want to say qualifications um but my intentions once I'm finished my my schooling is to be able to provide therapy so so for instance for instance counseling is generally given by a mental health professional whether that's a social service worker mental health and addictions worker peer support what have you and generally in counseling um first of all it's time limited so that might be you might have like an eight or a 10 block. So that's 10 sessions before um, they come to an end. And then if need be, they would reassess and then go from there. Where therapy, that could be that could be um, done by a psychotherapist, um, a psychologist, etc. And that's generally when they focus on, 
you know, helping you understand yourself, understand um, behavioral patterns, and it's more for like a long-term basis. What about one of my family members that has paranoia, schizophrenia? What about? Uh, For one of my family members, he has paranoia, schizophrenia, so he would... I guess he would need psychotherapy or okay. uh, that's well, the thing I'm, I'm never was sure about. Okay. So it, every, everyone's different. Everyone's treatment looks different. Um, when you talk about therapy that could be given, like I said, from different professionals based on the type of therapy that they need. Right. Cause that could be EMD, sorry, EMDR, which is eye movement desensitization desensitization I forget their last part or whatever um that could be psychotherapy that could be and so on um so for for that relative in particular I I can't say exactly what type of therapy or medication that he'd need to be on I can only speak for myself but he would probably be first of all talk to a psychiatrist which I can explain the difference between psychiatrists and psychologists in a minute mm-hmm. um that would diagnose him with whatever he had. And generally, the since psychiatrists are medical doctors, they're also responsible for prescribing medication that he would have to take, whether that's Abilify. Um, that's just the first one that popped into my head that I know sometimes people with um, that have paranoid schizophrenia will take. Uh, he doesn't take any medication. Okay, well. <laughs> he doesn't accept what he has. Yeah, so it's... You, you have to go from there. Myself, for having me having bipolar disorder, I can answer what treatment I'm currently receiving. So I speak with um, a social worker, um, master social worker. So that's the clinic- clinician that provides me with uh, therapy, whether that's talk therapy, um, EMDR, but that's more specifically for like CPTSD um, and so on. And then I also, I also speak with a psychiatrist, which I'm very lucky because since I live in a small town, the mental health resources are pretty limited. So I am very, very fortunate for the team that I do have behind me. Um, my psychiatrist is actually through telepsych, telepsychiatry by CM, CMHA. Sorry. And this is in Ontario, Canada. Yeah. So the Canadian Mental Health Association. A lot of times people don't realize that there's different avenues that you can take, especially with psychiatrists, because generally when you know, someone needs to see a psychiatrist, they could be on a wait list for two years, you know, like, or even more so where this new program by uh, the Canada Mental Health Association, that's a mouthful. Um, it's almost like a mental health clinic that they're able to provide with people by using um, like teleconferencing. Uh, and then that way, you know, they're able to get to people sooner so they can provide a diagnosis and then get them on the appropriate treatment plan. For people... Uh- for persons living in, in various countries, uh, such as uh, United States or Europe or Australia or India, let's say, where would you suggest that they go for mental health counseling? To their local doctor, possibly, and then uh, they get a referral or, or to the emergency room at the hospital? It's It really depends on the situation and the person and the symptoms that they're experiencing. I don't know myself what the steps would be to um, seek mental health um, support in other countries. I can just share from my own experience. You can start off by talking to your family doctor, talking about these the symptoms that you're experiencing. Sometimes <clears throat> it may be, you know, a crisis intervention situation where going to the emergency room would probably be a good idea. However, Despite, you know, a lot of the times, unless you're specifically trained in mental health, in the mental health field, it's very hard for even like nurses, like regular nurses to to be familiar. Like I remember going one time to the hospital for my, my symptoms and the nurses not knowing what hypervigilance was, which is one of the key features of having CPTSD. Um, That's a very interesting point that sometimes people in the medical field, i.e. nurses or even doctors, even doctors don't maybe aren't trained enough in the mental health field where 
possibly there should be. I'm sure they they do education. receive. Yeah, I'm sure they do receive training and and whatnot. But it's one like it's a com- complex thing too, right? You know, it, it all depends on the professional scope of practice in the area of expertise. So I think that'd probably be like a really important um, note is to make sure that you're seeing the right, the right person or the right professional. Um, oh, uh, and before we go on too too much farther too, I thought I'd quickly explain the difference between psychiatrists and psychologists since I had mentioned that earlier. So um, as I said before, psychiatrists are medical doctors and they're generally the ones that will diagnose or recommend therapies and prescribe medication. I do believe in the past that they used to be able to provide like talk therapies, but I, I, I don't know exactly when they changed that in Canada, but um, psychiatrists and psychologists, the two terms usually get, you know, mixed up or they're also used interchangeably. So psychologists are more like assessment based um they're also they're also able to to actually offer um different treatments and therapies as well it's so it really just depends on you know what the what the individual needs for support um but i uh before going on too much farther just because i feel like a lot of the times you know <sighs> Yeah, even going back to like the stigma surrounding mental health, I think a lot of the times we we associate people that we know that have, you know, that are experiencing severe symptoms, like I was saying earlier about like Charlie Sheen, Kanye West. But I also... What symptoms were they experiencing? Uh, some f- people might not be familiar with Char- Charlie Sheen or Kanye West. What, what symptoms? Well, they have bipolar type 1, which I so- can... <laughs> which I can explain in a minute. But I want, before going further, I do want to share some really important people, very influential people. Um, I think a lot of them were creative geniuses too, which I have a theory about bipolar disorder and creativity, but I don't know <laughs> if if it's actually true or not. This is just from my, I guess, my own observation. But so there was Beethoven, Van Gogh, Charles Dickens, Winston Churchill, Isaac Newton, Ernest Hemingway, Frank Sinatra, Jimi Hendrix, these are all people that had bipolar disorder. Um, And I guess to use like recent examples, I'm not always the best at remembering like (laughs) actors' name, but like Halsey, Demi Lovato, Sia. So I think that's where my my theory, I guess, comes in as far as people with bipolar disorder. Maybe they're, you know, maybe has something to do with creativity, which is interesting because one of the ways that I manage my own symptoms is by making sure that whenever I do use self-care, one of those self-cares have to do with doing something that's creative, whether that's painting. Um, I taught myself how to play the ukulele four months ago yeah, at, I while I was doing my exams because that's <laughs> I needed to manage my stress. And, and you're a great artist too, abstract artist. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so that was another outlet for you. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I guess uh, since we are on the top of uh, topic of bipolar disorder, I maybe I should explain the different types as well because yeah, um, it seems to be more common than what we ever, ever oh yeah thought of. definitely. When I was young, I never I never heard of bipolar disorder. I just heard of uh, well, she had to go away for a while, or she was sad all the time, and yeah. she was crying all the time not to mention all the time a lot of men would send their their wives if their wives didn't you know agree with them or if they seemed over emotional they would put their wives in institutions sometimes for the smallest things yeah in the 1960s and in in fact a lot of women I think even my mother I'm not sure but were diagnosed uh, with uh, some sort of nervousness or whatever, and they were given all lansipan or something. And it seemed like housewife after housewife after housewife was on an, a tranquilizer. Mm-hmm. And I just thought that was strange for me as a teenager, knowing about that, that it seemed like so many women, and they could have been just, you know, menopausal maybe early or early menopausal symptoms PMS. Or, or PMS or whatever but yeah. it seemed it just seemed that way and then yes I did hear the stories of, of women being institutionalized or hospitalized because they 
had a nervous breakdown or attempted suicide or whatever and and some there just wasn't enough knowledge it seemed back then or education or even research into mental health disorders and people were diagnosed with whatever and then over medicated with whatever and it, mm-hmm. it seems so sad in a way but thank goodness things are getting better but we still have a way to go mm-hmm. maybe you can explain a little bit more about that Jessica if you don't mind um or the types of bipolar even I see commercials about that on CNN yeah. and CTV now well so I think I should start off by talking about the possible causes of bipolar disorder specifically. Oh, I didn't know there was a cause. Well, so there's no like one cause. It's just, I guess it's theorized what could cause this disorder. Um, one of the main things is that it is a her- hereditary disorder, um, especially if there's a parent or even a sibling with bipolar disorder. I think it raises the, the chances by 50%. Don't quote me on that, but it, it was a pretty high percentage. Um, when I was learning what I learned in school anyways, um, but also it could be a physical, the physical structure or chemical imbalance in the brain. Um, it could be, you know, someone that experiences severe stress, you know, that could cause an episode of psychosis or it could, you know, and then, um, drug and alcohol abuse as well as traumatic experiences. So I don't really know. I can't say where mine came from. Um, there is there, there is some people in in the family that has bipolar diagnosis as, as well. Mm-hmm. So is it genetic? You wonder. Oh well, that that's one of the hypotheses, I guess. But can't. But really, you can't say for sure. Um, because people don't know. Well, they're still they're still trying to figure it out. You know, like mm-hmm. different experts have different opinions on it. Um, and I'm definitely not an expert. I'm just someone that has bipolar type two. So, um, a lot of people don't realize that there's different types of bipolar disorder, just like how there's different types of PTSD, which I have the CPTSD. Um, anyways, so I think I'll start, I'll, I'll name the four, I guess, classifications of bipolar disorders. So you have bipolar type one, bipolar type two. I don't always say this one properly. Cyclothyroid. Thomia, I believe, or cyclothymic, anyways, <laughs> um, or the other specified or unspecified types. So like I'd mentioned before, I have bipolar type 2. Um, and <laughs> bipolar type 2 and bipolar type 1, they are different from each other. I can't necessarily say one is worse um, because I don't think it's necessarily easy to, I don't, I don't think it's fair to be able to say that one's harder than the other because I know I know some people that have bipolar type 2 that haven't experienced the same intensity as my symptoms and vice versa. I know people that, with type 2 that have experienced very, you know, but generally the, the biggest difference between the two is the different types of mania. So in bipolar type 1, um, the individual will experience a severe form of mania where... And what do you mean? Is that like the high lows people talk yes, about? Yes, yeah, okay. So you've talked about yourself? Yeah, and um, hypomania is for bipolar type 2. So for the lows, um, that's more of like a major depressive or depressive episode. And for bipolar type 2, which is the one that I have, that's kind of like the key marker of... Um, I experience hypomania, so... It's a less severe form of mania, and then my lows last a lot longer, and they're more severe, whereas someone with type 1 have more severe episodes of true mania, um, and then they may or may not experience any depressive episodes. Uh, And also, the other difference between the two is that I believe for mania for bipolar type 1, it needs to last over seven days. But it could last from anywhere from weeks to months to years. Um, whereas in for hypomania for bipolar type 2, I think it was, said it was like about four or five days. That's usually how long mine lasts for when I'm hypomanic. Um, and then for depressive episodes, it's got it's to gotta last longer than two weeks for the bipolar type 2. So um, going back, I guess, to explain further of uh, of what mania is is so (laughs) mania 
And that would be the high. The right? highs, yes. The highs. So when I say the okay. highs, I mean mania or hypomania in my case. The lows are the, the depressive episodes. So generally with bipolar type 1, the mania gets so severe that the majority of the time the individual needs to be hospitalized. Oh my goodness. Yep. Um, and that's more of like they can have the high energy, the euphoria, the very uh, inflated self-worth. They could be delusional. They could have hallucinations, periods of psychosis. And so that's when you, they say they they go crazy, they do so many things so fast and they can't seem to stop or slow down. That would be the, the, ma- the manic Yeah, and I, I crazy, the word crazy gets thrown around a lot too, which I like, that's something even sometimes I'll use that term as well. But that's also how we feed into the stigma of it, right? So Yeah, and that's what I grew up with is, but we didn't know what the, what the, what was going on with a person if mm-hmm. they had a bipolar high. I mean, it was something I just didn't grow up hearing about. Mm-hmm. But it would be like uh, knowing about a housewife that just wouldn't stop cleaning and, and then she'd crash. And then we'd wonder, like, something's wrong with her kind of thing, you know. Yeah. But she could have had bipolar symptoms and mm. cleaned her house from top to bottom and emptied every cupboard. I I know of someone like that. And... Uh, we didn't understand what they were going through, and then they would crash. Well, and, be and in it's, bed for days. it could be so much more than that, even because when you're looking at mania, not only is it you know lack of sleep, lack of eating, um, high energy, almost like obsessive, um, like what you're saying, cleaning. Although that could have been a whole bunch of different other types of mental illnesses. Not it can't just be said that it was bipolar symptoms, no. right? Yeah. Because it all needs to and then there's the impulsivity, the risky behavior. The you know. shopping over overdoing on the shopping. Yeah. Yeah. Uh sexual high Pro, uh, promiscuity. There's yeah. there's a lot. Yeah. Um, That's another thing I heard about too is the if there uh, if a person is uh bipolar uh, they have you know higher incidences of prom- promiscuity and then they hate themselves after yeah, no. Yeah, it's... Again, yeah. this is all what I've heard. And so it's not that it happened in your case, but I mean, it's just... Oh, I'm sure people... there's even times where it has when I've been hypomanic, which is, you know what? <laughs> yeah. That's fine. You know, it's part of yeah. it's part of having the disorder. But like and... I said, everyone's different. Just because someone has, you know, two people have bipolar disorder does not mean that they're going to experience it the same way. And what about the lows? Like the lows? So th- I feel more comfortable speaking about the lows just because I have bipolar type 2. And myself, I've never experienced what they call true mania. So I can only I can only go off of what I know. But there, at the same time, there's a part of me that thinks that I could possibly have the first type. Um, but it doesn't really matter too much right now because of the treatment plan that I'm on. It's working and it's... You know, every few months I do have to either increase my medication or we have to try something different. But that's just part of, you know, living with a chronic disease, disorder. So, um, yeah. So, like I said, I feel more comfortable talking about the depressive lows because that's bipolar type 2. That's one of the main features. And that that has, like, you know, the same markers of, like, major depressive episodes where it's prolonged sadness or hopelessness. There's the chronic fatigue the irritability, um, trouble concentrating, um, sleeping and eating habits change, which is a lot of people don't realize the difference of these two either. I have something that's called um, uh, disordered eating. And a lot of the times people think that means, oh no, eating disorder, but those are two different things. So eating disorder has more to do about, you know, like I, I don't, maybe I shouldn't say that because I'm not a professional. <laughs> I'll just stick to what I know. Whereas my disorder, it does affect how I eat and how I sleep because of, you know, needing, I don't get hungry, you know, and it's not because I I don't want to gain weight. It's just, that's the last thing that, you know, that's on my mind. And so that's when you're in a bipolar low then. And high. It oh, can be, high. oh yeah. And oh, a lot of these okay. depressive symptoms also can manifest themselves in hypomania or mania. Right. So in a lot of times, I think, too, when people hear the highs and the lows, they associate the highs to always kind of being a good thing, yeah. well, which I mean, I actually I love when I'm when I'm hypomanic because I got a lot of things done. I feel better about myself, but it can quickly crash. Or it could it could turn into um, 
extreme irritability, you know, it can trouble concentrating, like, it really depends on the episode, like one episode can be completely different than the other, right? So, um, how do you medicate yourself? And what's the problem with getting medication? And sometimes when you see, a, a, let's say someone living on the streets, and they have a mental illness, you you know, you could see possibly that they're strung out or whatever, or maybe addicted. I think the biggest problem is the cost. Uh, even living in Canada, uh, we have OHIP, which covers our health uh, uh, appointments and stuff like that, health provider appointments, but it's sometimes not all of our medication is covered. Uh, what would you say about the cost? Let's say you're diagnosed with bipolar or schizophrenia or whatever. What what can what do the doctors give you for that? So this reminds me of a time that I was talking to a psychiatrist who said the best type of medication is the one that the patient takes. Oh, <laughs> so right. You go. So and a lot That's of times there are there are barriers to accessing medication. You know, sometimes it's not always a choice whether or not they want to take it. Sometimes it is. The, the cost like for myself I don't have any medical benefits so I pay out of pocket for my medication I'm not going to say how much I pay but being a single mom it's hard it's hard especially because I take I take different medication right it's not just the one um so but I wanted to go back because I feel like we we kind of skipped on this before um I, I got a chance to finish talking about the lows because oh, these yes. last yeah because these two symptoms are very important to talk about because I feel like this is the part that a lot of people don't understand, especially, I guess, in my case, um, is how different my mind works. You know, like even for one of one of the things sometimes that I'll do is I will withdraw or avoid. And a lot of times people think that's a choice, but it's that's just how my brain works in a low. It's more difficult to reach out, you know, and I think there's so much, there's a lot of media and around this and, you know, everyone's just go and get help. It's not that easy, you know, like I'm, I'd be more proactive when I'm stable or when I'm in a higher mood, but when I'm in a low mood, there's all those extra barriers and it's not just for medication or therapies, right? Like it really depends on the person. And the other big part is the suicidal ideation. I have attempted to commit suicide before one time I was pretty close you know you were what 15 16 16 yeah but even but even even like older than that part of having a low is suicidal ideations you think about you know it'd be so much easier if I wasn't here and you know I think a lot of times people it makes them uncomfortable to talk about that because they kind of take it on a personal level but that's also part of the disorder you know and when my lows are bad they're still there and I don't want to die I don't want to commit suicide you know I have a lot of things to live for but that's part of the disorder right so that also goes into how important it is to hold space for someone that's experiencing that you know you can't you can't go in and fix it for them but what you can do is sit there and listen and not not worry about putting words into their mouth or taking it personally because you can't this is their disorder. And even like when I'm doing my schoolwork, for instance, I have a very high GPA right now and I'm proud of it, especially having learning disabilities. Um, I've received sponsorships. I've received grants. I'm doing very well. But when I'm in a low mood, it's almost impossible for me to do my work properly. It's so much harder, you know, and I also find for myself too, especially in lows, it's so much easier for me to get emotionally overstimulated, which makes things more complicated because of having a CPTSD diagnosis as well, um, which I can describe that a little bit more in a few minutes. Mm-hmm. But, it, you know, it's that part is hard. And especially for my lows, that's something that, you know, every three or four months where my medication does need to increase. So I'm on, currently I'm on antipsychotics and I'm on a very, very strong antidepressant, you know? And what would you say for parents or <clears throat> caregivers or loved ones trying to help uh, a loved one that has a mental health disorder such as bipolar or severe depression or even just dealing with stress or anxiety. But in your case with bipolar, when a person is in a high or a low, 
what would you say to another person if you could to give them advice on how to deal with uh, how to work with someone or show compassion or or maybe be a better listening ear what would you say is, is good advice to or suggestion yeah I'd, I'd rather use suggestion instead of advice personally because I do believe words are important and the discourse behind words they do matter words do matter you know so yes. um it really depends like I said on the person one of the biggest things that I think a lot of people overlook, especially when mental illness or mental disorders is involved, is they try and make decisions for that person. But that is, you know, one of the, I don't want to say the worst things that you can do, but you really have to respect their self-autonomy. They have the right to choice to choices, whether it's to pursue treatment or not. And when you start taking away those choices or ignoring personal autonomy, it becomes that much harder to support them, which... It also goes back to the difference between help and supporting, which I'd like to talk about a little bit later, Mm -hmm. about the difference between the two and why I think it's so important, you know, to consider these things. So if a person, if a person is diagnosed with a mental health disorder, what you're suggesting is leave them alone more or less or not to take their medication as a lay person I don't really know what that means like yours I I have a family member that has paranoid schizophrenia and at times I I worry about him in fact I was the one that brought him to the hospital when he was young so he was told to take this medication and he refused to do so so what would you suggest for a loved one to help another loved one, Jess? Well, I'd never say not to take medication or any of that. And I want to reinstate again that it really just depends on the person in the situation, right? So when, I guess the difference, like when it's important to get involved is when they're either a threat to themselves or to others. That's like two, or, you know, if if they've abused someone or whatever else, that that's important. But going back to first and person first approach you got to respect their self autonomy you know you have to because if you ignore that they're not going to they're not going to be all in like you want you can't you know if you expect someone to act a certain way you're always going to be disappointed and i think that's really important whether whether or not the, some, someone has a mental illness or not you cannot predict you cannot control people's behavior or their thoughts or their feelings because that's only looking at you know the surface approach so like I said, per, like respecting their self-autonomy, you can express concern, which I think is important too, but do it in a way where it doesn't sound accusatory, you know, use those I statements. Don't try and resist the urge to, to, to use you or whatever else, because that's when someone feels attacked. If you say, I'm concerned because I've noticed that, right? So it's a different, where it's, You've been acting like this. See, even the like the term the the tone of my voice is a little bit different, right? right. One sounds more gentler, I guess. And when you the, say I, feel yeah, this. I statements are so important, especially. Um, the other thing that I'd suggest too is like pay attention to the difference between who that person is and what their disorder looks like, right? So we have. When we're healthy, I guess, or, you know, in these stable, stable minds or stable points of time anyways, you know, like even for me. So I'm introverted, sometimes omniverted, you know, I have different quirks, but I am who I am when I'm in a stable state of mind, stable state of mind, you know, whereas when I'm not doing well, let's say for my lows, I'm even more withdrawn. I I have a harder time concentrating. I don't eat. I don't eat like I should. That's one of the biggest things too. Not sleeping properly. You know, that's what that you can kind of tell the difference between the two. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. So, yeah, I guess that would be my next suggestion. Be able to learn who the person is and what their disorder looks like because the two are different, you know? So what you're saying is a person still a loved person towards another loved person is you're suggesting that we should try to educate ourselves as much as possible, even on our own. Uh, yeah, well, educate 
Yeah, because it's good to know, you know, like the formal part of it. But I'm not just saying educate as far as, you know, going to look up what this is. Like, it's important to know who that person is. You know what I mean? Like, because there is a difference. There Mm -hmm. is a difference when someone's not doing well as opposed to when they are. So, and just remember, like, that person, whether they're sick or not, they still have feelings. They still have goals. They still have hopes. They still have insecurities, right? And those are all things that are important. And a lot of times, like I was saying earlier about holding space, when we're talking to somebody, you know, and we're supposed to give them our undivided attention, we're not sitting there while the person's talking, thinking about, oh, what am I going to say next? You know, it's not about that. Sometimes holding space is not thinking anything in the background while you're listening to someone, you know, like it, make sure there's no distractions, whatever else. And know that you can't fix it and that's a hard pill to swallow yeah well as a parent that's how your dad and I felt when you were younger is we felt that sense of helplessness and despair actually and and of course worry it did help us as a family to go for counseling with you with the counselor and with your twin sister it it really helped a lot but it it was sad to see you go through well, and even the counseling, like it, the counseling helped with coping, but it didn't actually help with my symptoms either. You know, like it's just, it was it's at the early stages of everything. I think. Yeah. Yes. And no, yes. And no, you know, like, of course you can do things like as a support, you know, like for instance, um, since I don't live where my parents and my sister, I live out of town, my close friends that live in the same town as I do, they know you know, they know what to do when I'm not in a good place. And sometimes, like, I have one friend that'll just show up without being invited. She'll just show up and make sure that I ate that day or that I took my medication or that I went outside, you know. And it's it's great because she herself, she's also very misunderstood. She has autism disorder. So it's nice when, that we can kind of use each other's support even though we both have different diagnoses we just kind of understand certain things about each other yes because sometimes uh we don't all have good families and uh our family is uh, very supportive and loving but not everyone has good family or like jessica was saying uh, as jessica was saying she lives in a different city than we do and so uh this is where good friends come into play and they become in a way, your chosen family or your chosen sister or chosen brother. But having good friends is so important. And uh, Friends, family, medical team, it really takes a tribe, honestly. And, like, this is – I've had to come to a point in my life to realize that this is not something that's going to go away. You know, yeah. even though I am medicated, it still doesn't take away the symptoms 100%. I still have – horrible intrusive thoughts I still have suicidal ideation you know I still have times where I don't sleep or like the medication does help but it doesn't completely take things away um but yeah so going back to as far as the support goes yeah be there to hold space know who the person is and what their disorder looks like or their illness looks like and just you know I mean you could you could be helpful for giving um to remind them about different basic self-care things like showering or brushing their teeth or eating but also having to be okay with if they can't do it because if you force them like like I said you're just going to put a wall up and they're not going to come to you for help because you can't help them that way if you're going to you know and what about the the extra responsibility when you have a mental health uh issue or I think everyone in their life should get counseling uh, at times but uh being a mother, how has that impacted you? And how how do you deal with that, being a mother and then also trying to cope with life as, as is with with the symptoms that you have, let's say? Honestly, I just talk, I just tell everyone that I struggle with bipolar disorder and CPTSD because it takes the guessing out of it. You know, like even for the boys' school, the, the teachers, they all know that what I'm diagnosed with. They all do, and especially because I'm not ashamed about it, I think it kind of makes things a little bit easier. But you know, so if that way, if you know, it 
I think the biggest thing too, along with, you know, self-disclosing these things and not, it's not going to work for everybody because sometimes, you know, the judgment from other people really suck, you know, and it doesn't matter how thin, sorry, sorry, how thick your skin is. There's always that underlying judgment, you know? So it's one of those things that I just get out there almost like as a way to prove to people that, you know, we're not, you're, we're, I hate to use the word crazy, but we're not, we don't all come across the same way, you know, even though we have a similar disorder, which I think is important going back to being a mother myself, as far as being, you know, I guess. So if you're, let's say when you have a, a manic time or session, hypermanic, high or low, mm-hmm. if I'm saying that correctly, when you have your three little boys, and Jessica's a good mother, by the way, folks. Uh, when you have your three little boys, uh, you know, coming home and they're upset from their day or they need to be fed, uh, dinner, lunch, or sandwiches made, or bedtime, how do you cope with that when you're going through something that is difficult for for you to go through? Well, like I was saying about being honest with, you know, like, like I said, the school, but I'm also very open and honest with my three kids. You know, I try and use not kid language, but language that they will understand and just being very open about, you know, what it looks like. You know, it's, it's not, you'd be surprised how capable kids are of understanding things resilient and resilient like they my boys know what my disorder looks like going back to being aware of what symptoms look like they know what how mommy acts when her brain is sad they know how mommy acts when her brain is hyper you know and it's nice because like especially my older my older kids particularly my oldest he really helps out he's like the man of the house like he will help um Sometimes with clean, he's 11, yeah. He'll help me out with the cleaning or he'll be like, it's okay, mommy. I'm going to make them cup of soups or whatever else. And I think the reason why that's it's so important, especially in my opinion, is that, you know, since they do have a parent with bipolar disorder, not saying that they will develop it, but the, the chances are a lot higher. And I don't want them to grow up thinking that this is something that they have to keep to themselves or be ashamed about. You know, so that's why, like I said, I'm very open and honest. And then, of course, having family and friends help out, too, when I'm in those in those moments of being un- unwell in these episodes. Um, but, it, yeah, it, it really just depends on what the episode, what that p- particular episode looks like and what's going on, because it it could be drastically different from each other, you know, between each one. So, uh, but I... <sighs> I feel like a lot of these, a lot of what I personally experience is not just bipolar disorder symptoms. Like I said earlier, I have CPTSD symptoms as well. So sometimes I think that could be why a lot of my lows can be harder because it also exasperates those symptoms as well. Um, Maybe you could explain what CPS... CPTSD. CPS... You're going to have to... It's okay. So it's complex PTSD disorders. So I think a lot of times people are more familiar with PTSD, you know, and that's not just... What does that mean now exactly? Post-traumatic stress disorder. Post-traumatic stress disorder. Okay. Okay. And so a lot of people are familiar with PTSD and it's not just, you know, soldiers that go away and fight in wars or those that experience like natural disasters or whatever else. There's different forms of trauma. And we call them the the big T's and the little T's of trauma, but there's no there's not one more than more important than the other. I don't know if that's the correct correct way of saying it, but the analogy that I use is that we all climb different mountains, right? So someone could have a very steep incline in their ha- their mountain, and it could be very very difficult. Whereas someone else might not have that steep of an incline, but there's a lot of ups and downs, and that's that's a lot of work having to do all that, right? So. I think that's important too, but generally PTSD is someone that's experienced something traumatic or let's say a couple different traumatic experiences. Um, That's where, you know, someone could have night terrors, they could have um, flashbacks, which is either visual, it could be sensual, different, there's different types of flashbacks as well, moments of disassociation or feeling numb. 
um, yeah, and so on, where CPTSD, um, I guess it's the best way of explaining it is that someone that's experienced multiple forms of trauma, but also prolonged trauma, which could be months or years of it. And basically, I, my opinion, the biggest difference between the two is CPTSD, it really affects like someone's emotional trauma that they've experienced. And it's almost like it becomes this, not becomes who they are, but a lot of their personality traits, I guess, or mannerisms, it could be a result of CPTSD, where PTSD, you know, you can, you can go in for different therapies or whatever. It might take a couple years, but you know, that's more, it's more easier. I shouldn't say it's more easier. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, I can't say that one's harder than the other. Um, but yeah, so the P- complex PTSD, it relates to or having difficulty with like emotional regulation, um, self-worth and self-esteem and patterns of unhealthy relationships. So it's usually uh, as well severe and persistent negative beliefs of self, the avoidance, not being able to trust others. Like I said earlier, patterns of unhealthy relationships, um, being able to manage their their emotions. You know, someone might be more prone to anger outbursts. And a lot of times it's easy to point the finger and be like, oh, that person has anger problems. But it's not just black and white, right? So it could be, that could also be one as well. Periods of self-harm, emptiness and hopelessness, uh, extreme startle response, which that's gone a little bit better for me, but I still have times where when I am overstimulated that that still comes out. Um, as well as hypervigilance, which at the beginning of this interview, I think we're talking about how some nurse, nurses didn't know what hypervigilance was. Yes. Um, and then the, the intrusive thoughts, the memory loss, especially when it has to come to trauma. Um, there could be a lot of holes in someone's memory of what they experience. I know some people that don't remember years of their lives because of the, the CPTSD, what they have. Um, and then the constant feelings of fear, guilt, and shame. It's it's awful. <laughs> really, it's very difficult. Like, Can you be medicated for that or does that require therapy? Both, probably. It really, like I said, it depends. There's not just one type of therapy or one medication that, you know, both of them, that CPGSD or bipolar disorder, it really depends on the person, you know, and hopefully that person is seeing, you know, a good me- mental health professional or medical professional that is able to help put them on you know, that right course of treatment. Sometimes it could take years before, you know, someone's finally on the right medication or doing the right type of therapy. That's why, you know, it's, it's hard. But for myself, um, I've experienced a lot of different trauma. A lot of it had to do with sexual assaults. Um, and I, I feel like it kind of came to a head the last time I was experiencing severe trauma. Um, and it was interesting because when I was going through that traumatic period, I was also receiving EMDR for the three, the two other traumas that I had experienced before. And the people that um, were around me while I was going through that time were not good people. Um, they were able to not put people against me, but plant seeds of doubt in people that I needed to be there to be supportive um, and it's because the, one of the main ones that we're doing was the one that was abusing me. Right. Yeah. So that was really difficult because, um, like I said, I was being traumatized while also going for trauma treatment. <laughs> so it, it really made things worse to a degree. Um, but at the same time, it was kind of like the crash and burn that needed to happen because, um, I felt like at that around like at that point I wasn't taken as seriously about what was going on mentally and emotionally um and I wasn't feeling heard like at all <laughs> so that's when you know I started being very very open like I was making like Facebook live videos and talking about it and some people really didn't like that but it was what I needed to do at that time um for connection and 
it, yeah. It probably, it really helped you to vent. No, it wasn't even just venting because it wasn't, no, no, because it was a lot of times, yes, it was educating other people, but a lot of people don't realize the difference between attention seeking and connection seeking. And I was seeking connection. I wanted to be seen and heard because at that point people were talking on behalf of me or they whatever else, you know, like Mm -hmm. I was always, so it was kind of like that breakthrough that I needed, you know, and yes, a lot of people, like I said, didn't like that, you know, I lost people in my life as a result of that relationships were made more difficult because of that but it's what needed to happen and then it also almost kind of gave me that push to confront my abuser um which was absolutely terrifying because it wasn't just him it was also the gang of men that were always there working in the shop and most of these men had gone to prison before so that also made things a lot more difficult but it's crazy I don't know if it was if it was what whether it came from having a bipolar disorder or my CPTSD symptoms finally coming to I don't know but I was able to confront all of them and for for someone under 120 pounds they were acting pretty afraid of me. So maybe that's why it's, you know, sometimes being crazy isn't really a bad thing. And I say crazy in quotations. But, um, but yeah, and then it, and then my boys and I, we, because um, that's where we were living at the time around where the abuser was. Um, so we were homeless for a while. We were living in a women's shelter, um, which is where we needed to be. Like I got so much extra help with, as a, as a parent, we wanted Jessica to come here, but she felt it was important no. for her boys to still be close to their dad. And not so. just that, you know, especially when things are, are bad like that, it's very hard to involve, especially family, mm-hmm. you know, it doesn't matter how supportive they are, you know, it's... <sighs> but you, you went to the women's shelter and that was a good place. Found- oh yeah, they helped me tremendously with the boys, but they also help advocate on my behalf for more than one thing, you know, we were able to get into housing, which without their help, we would have never gone. I would have continued to be homeless with my three boys. And then also being taken seriously as far as my mental health concerns, because now I have, you know, these group of amazing women from the shelter, you know, not only helping me with the boys and helping deal with, you know, what was going on um, through that traumatic experiences especially dealing with police and whatnot um but yeah they were they were the ones that made the right calls for me to first of all see a psychiatrist a lot sooner than I would have probably um and just you know having those trained professionals there to know how to support you know would you say they they are social workers or counselors or what were um titles I can't, I can't say because I'm sure a lot of them have different backgrounds, but definitely mm-hmm. something along the, the lines of social work. Um, but yeah, and even just a lot of self-experience, like it's, it was pretty amazing to me to, to talk to some of the, the ladies that worked there who had also had to live there before in the past, um, you know, join from their own experiences. It, it really helps. And I think right now I want to, you know, maybe just like change gears a little bit talking about the difference between the word help and support. Um, And this is something that I think about a lot, especially learning more about the discourse of words. So I personally, I don't like the word help. And a lot of times when I say that, people are just like, what? Like, what do you mean you don't like the word help? And the way how I look at it is, okay, if you were to, let's say, put a picture into your mind of helping someone up, right? So someone's below you and you're pulling them up. Yes. That's what it makes me think for help. Whereas support, you're on the same level and you're just supporting their weight, right? It might You might not be doing that physically, but those associations, at least for me, when I think of the difference between the two, you know, and it's, I don't want to, I don't want to get help by someone, by someone who thinks that they're better. You know, I don't want that. It makes, it's condescending, it's belittling, and especially when I go into the fields, I don't want people to think that I'm any of those things, right? 
And the supporting, I think a lot of the times does come from personal experience. And I really noticed that while I was in the shelter, like I was saying before, how I was surprised by how many workers had actually lived there before, Mm -hmm. you know, they were the ones that were able to give me the best type of support because I didn't feel judged. I didn't feel belittled. I didn't feel like they were trying to take over, you know, Mm -hmm. and there's been many times in my life where I have felt belittled or I have felt like I didn't have a choice and I never, never got better those times. Never. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that's really important. And then going back again to the difference between connection seeking and attention seeking. I don't know where this came from specifically. But, you know, a lot of times when someone is being emotional or even like on Facebook, if I were to go back to, you know, how I was making those Facebook live videos, and like talking, people seem that as attention seeking. You know, and that's not what I I wanted. I thought they were great because they were to educate. Yeah, but something that I've learned is that as human beings, we're interdependent on each other, which means whether we like it or not, we have to be there for one another. And connection seeking, connecting to someone that understands you, I think is pretty powerful, you know, and it's. I Like I said, I don't want the attention. I didn't want the attention back then. I needed to connect with someone that believed me, you know, and stuff like that, or that just got me. And that was that's something that I bring forward with myself too, you know? Like, that's why it's important when I, instead of saying help, I say support, you know? Instead of attention-seeking, I think of connection-seeking. And it's just... I, I feel like when we think of it that way, it puts humanity back in I don't know Mm -hmm. if that makes sense but it goes back to the person first approach where you believe that we're you know yes someone might be struggling but they're still a person yeah and and in other words to me what I'm hearing as a mom is for possibly or uh, and not as a counselor for sure is to show more empathy and compassion instead of judgment or better than uh, and I have a feeling that uh, this is what Jessica has experienced, obviously, and many others uh, who have serious mental health issues is is what they're saying is instead just to have more compassion and and less of I'm better than I know more. This is what's good for or you. Someone's crazy or someone's crazy. Yeah. Or for them to snap out of it. Yeah, and not to say those uh, things that possibly she's heard and other people have heard as well. So let's wrap this up for now, and uh, and we'll talk on this subject or other subjects. Uh, I think she has one more item she'd like to bring up, and uh, then we'll call it a day for uh, this particular subject on on uh, a lot of subjects we covered. Thank you so much, Jessica. I'd like you to have the last word on on uh, this podcast, please. Okay, well, I guess to end on a, on a lighter note, um, I want to share what works for me. And um, whether, because the biggest things that I've learned for both of these disorders is that you have to manage stress and you have to manage boredom. And the ways that I do that... Um, I don't have a fancy name for it or anything, but there's three self-care things that I go back and forth between instead of having to do the guesswork constantly. Um, So let's use the example of me doing an exam because they're very stressful. And, you know, if if you've ever been a post-secondary student, um, you know, you'd have an idea of what kind of stress levels are involved. So what what I try for myself is the number one thing is to make sure I ate because like I said before, I struggled with the disordered eating. Um, the second thing is getting outside and fresh air, whether it's me going for a walk or literally just sitting on my front step for a few minutes. That's it really makes the world of difference. And then the third thing is doing something creative because it's, it, I think a lot of times when we do something creative, it's almost like it gives us that feeling of being liberated a little bit. And I feel like, you know, it could be different. It could be me playing like my ukulele or the painting or writing or whatever else. But that's the time where I'm least likely to judge myself. And 
you know, we all judge ourselves so harshly and we all have this idea of who we're supposed to be and how we're supposed to be. But a lot of the times we're not, we're not, I guess, present enough or, or kind enough or kind enough to ourselves, you know? So that's, that's the biggest thing I think is those three things. And then having that self-compassion, because if you don't have self-compassion, would you call that a grounding effect or I've heard that term lately a person grounding themselves uh before doing let's say in your case was an exam so you you took some time some self-care for yourself would that would would the grounding be called or yeah that'd be forms of ground so there's different types of grounding as well right so um grounding can be anywhere from going outside and putting your feet in the grass grounding could be listening to a song grounding could be you know, smelling something that smells great, you're using your senses, it really goes back to that person and what works for them. So I guess if I were to give any suggestion is don't have your heart set on just one way of doing things. Be open to different options or, you know, expect yourself to make mistakes or for you to fail or crash and burn and realize that, you know, even on your worst days, you still have a 100% success rate of getting through it. So, yeah, I think I'll just leave it there because I'm sure I could talk for another hour about the subject. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we will touch base on this for sure because it's so educational and it's, uh, I feel, something that uh, many people could possibly benefit from. Thank you so much, Jessica, for sharing your story and uh, what you've learned on on coping with uh, the issues that you have. All right. Take care, everyone. All the best. Bye.